I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernigo. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Ditloff. Folks, we're working through a big Lent theme, and we're going to get there in this episode. Um, last week, we talked about temptation. The week before, we talked about fasting in sort of a political register. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, this week, we're going to talk about uh, almsgiving and charity and how that kind of works itself out politically or maybe kind of like the critique that uh, we have to bring to it. And we'll get there in a minute. But before we get there, we have to talk about something else. It's so important. The uh, Maybe this is this fits into the Lenten theme in the sense that this article that we're about to talk about is the anti-Lent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the anti-Lent is right. Uh, you've probably seen the article going around Twitter. Um, Matt sent it to me. I thought it was very funny. It is in Christianity Today, and the headline is, A $100 billion ad campaign aims to make Jesus the, quote, biggest brand in your city. And the little uh, tagline here is, He gets us. An effort to attract skeptics and cultural Christians launches nationally this month, so do be prepared, I guess. <laughs> that's uh, right. But Christians still have questions about how the church markets faith. So, yep, uh, that's right. Right in the middle of, uh, of Lent, you've given up enough. You aren't eating meat on Fridays, and they're going to drop this on you this month. Uh, can you believe it? It's, it's pretty rough. You know, I think that it's already hard enough to give things up for Lent, and then this happens, and it just seems impossible. It just seems impossible yeah. to continue on with life in general <laughs> when people are doing this kind of thing. If they did the Gospels today and Jesus was out there in the desert, this would be a temptation of the devil, right? Like, <laughs> the devil would come up to him and be like, listen, I can make you the biggest brand in every city. <laughs> That's exactly it. And you know what? Honestly, if you read the website that they've created, the um, hegetsus.org or .com, whichever it is, <laughs> it reads that way. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 100% a, uh, a temptation to make Jesus very cool and then miss the point. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so we are going to talk about this for a minute because we have to. Normally, we would save something like this for the lock-in, which is a behind-the-paywall podcast where we just talk about goofy stuff going on in Christian culture and current events and so on. But we thought it's Lent, and what a perfect thing to sort of dig into uh, for the almsgiving episode, sort of the opposite of almsgiving, almstaking. <laughs> is that <laughs> what this might be? Um, so here's the short of it. All right, uh, it's what it sounds like. There is a $100 million ad campaign 
uh, by this big marketing team that is going to target you, dear listener, if you're a millennial or a Gen Zer or or one of them at heart, I guess. Uh, this marketing campaign is coming from you. It is coming from the Michigan-based marketing agency Haven. And uh, in it, each ad focuses on an aspect of Jesus's earthly experience with which today's the struggle is real crowd might resonate. Jesus was judged too. And Jesus had fun with his friends too. <laughs> Jesus is always doing that. In the gospels, it's like, oh, Jesus. He's, I mean, okay. I guess think about it like this, right? Jesus is asleep on that boat in the, uh, the tumultuous uh, sea. And then uh, he wakes up and that's fun. That's him having fun with his friends. He's just out there on mm-hmm. the boat. Yeah, and like when he uh, when he went to that big kegger and turned all the water into wine. That's fun. Uh, and he was always partying. That Jesus. That was with his mom, but I mean, I guess that's fun. True. <laughs> you can have a cool mom. You can have a cool mom. You can drink with your cool mom. You can turn a lot of water into wine with your cool mom at a cool party. That's fun. <laughs> Jesus is just like you. You're doing that all the time, right? Um, okay, so the whole thing is absolutely bonkers. Um it's bad. It's obscene that you would give $100 million to make Jesus cool. I feel like that misses the point so hard. Um, here is a quote from the article, though, that I think sort of like encapsulates the whole push really well. It goes like this. Despite disagreements about tactics or even the content, the He Gets Us team is confident that they're starting where every successful ad campaign starts with a good product. <laughs> <laughs> These people need to fear God more. <laughs> Market research said McKendry, who's the guy behind the team, found skeptics were more likely to be convinced their values lined up with Jesus than with other religious figures like Muhammad and Buddha. So that's it. That's why we got Jesus out on the table, because uh, Jesus is, uh, I guess, more likely to align with the values of skeptics than others. And I think that's (laughs) it's bananas. It's off the wall. What are they doing? He's just the superior product. That's all there is to it. Jesus is a superior product. He's just like you and your friends having a great time. There's a video on the it's embedded in the article, but it's also on their website. And it's just like <laughs> it's so bonkers. It was just like Jesus's friends are a bunch of troublemakers that got arrested, which sounds cool on this face. But then it's not like and then you should do it, too, or something. Yeah. It's like, think about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it there's no like there's no real substance to it it's just like you should think about jesus a little bit more and he was a cool guy and like like you you'd hang out with him if you could jesus yeah. would totally play halo with you but like there's there's nothing at the bottom of it yeah every single one of these is basically like a video or something like so there's like there's a number of different like themes i guess of the ads and everyone could just end with like jesus ever heard of him and that would be fine like that that's basically the substance of the whole thing there's like there's an article on the website that like okay so the article uh, sorry the website is laid out like this there's just a bunch of articles that kind of like correspond to the larger like themes in Jesus' life there's one about like him getting arrested there's one about like sex workers and there's one about um, being angry and frustrated. There's one about financial struggles, and each one is like, like vaguely correct. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> the arrested, the arrested article. The arrested article says, you know, Jesus was arrested, and that was really hard. And if you're a person that was arrested, I bet you could turn your story of struggle into one that's very hopeful. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but what? What do you have to say about the system that arrested me? <laughs> what do you have to say about <laughs> the reason why two million people in the United States are incarcerated? Nothing. <laughs> I think that Jesus, uh, who is, of course, the superior brand to everything else in the entire world, probably would have something to actually say rather than just sort of like vague platitudes about, uh, I don't know, being cool and edgy. 
Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is very funny. The Nike of religion is here. Uh, I do love, though, there's one little segment that's like uh, struggling financially. That's kind of the theme of it. And they talk about how Jesus also struggled financially his whole life, struggled to put food on his table. (laughs) It's it's a wild way uh, to put that, though. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Uh, But it's especially wild because the ad campaign is, let's remind you, $100 million. Are you struggling financially? Well, we could have used this money to, like, uh, I don't know, erase your medical debt or something. But uh, instead, we needed to convince everyone that Jesus is very cool. It's such a bizarre thing to me, though, because it's like in the United States, in North America, is there really a single person who doesn't, like, have a sort of cursory knowledge of what Jesus is about? I, It's hard for me to believe. It's hard for me to believe. They've this just is never heard necessary. of him. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, I mean, can you imagine, all right, here, this would, I'll just give them a free idea. This is an even better ad campaign. Imagine if they had taken, like, $75 million, <laughs> and they just, like, used it to, I don't know, like, buy a bunch of poor people's stuff or whatever, and then they took $25 million and just told everybody about it for, like, three years. It would be a way better ad campaign, I think. You could, with $25 million, think of all the people you could you could pay just to post about all the cool things you've done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, they need to, that's what they need to do. Spread this money out, find some like uh, social media click farms, you know, in the global south. I mean, you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck that way, unfortunately. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, instead, that is the nature they're, market. They're going to blow $100 million on TV ads and like billboards, <laughs> two things that millennials and Gen Z love to look at. We love, we love okay. our TV. We love our billboards. Get them in front of our faces. So there you have it, folks. Uh, he gets us. It's the the nega Lent, the Bizarro Lent, the bad bad thing that shouldn't be happening during Lent. Uh, the opposite of fasting, whatever that is. Uh, too much consuming, I guess. Um, but let's talk instead about why we're really here, which is uh, almsgiving. It is that good spiritual disciplinary time of Lent. Um, the struggle is real. Uh, and these ads don't resonate with me, but um, the almsgiving theme actually kind of is. So let's let's get into it. Um, like Matt said, we've been talking about Lent, temptation, fasting, etc. Uh, now we're going to get into sort of almsgiving and charity more broadly. Uh, Lent is a time when Christians are called to think about uh, the poor and those who are suffering around the world and how we can work to alleviate that suffering. It's an important part of Lent, something that maybe I didn't hear too much about growing up, but also I can remember hearing some of it. Um, There are, just in the United States, 140 million poor and low-income people, and uh, moving around a little bit of money here and there for those folks is fine, but moving around that money also doesn't fundamentally disrupt the systems of exploitation that made those millions of people poor in the first place. And if we try to zoom out even further, you know, to the global south or something like that, you're going to add millions and millions more on top of that. So when we talk about something like charity or almsgiving, I think Lent gives gives us this really interesting opportunity to reflect on what those ideas in the Christian tradition do for us, maybe what their limitations are, and if there are some other ways we could sort of interpret them or maybe deepen their meaning for us in a political register. Yeah, I think so. That sounds like a really cool thing to talk about. (laughs) I'm excited to do it. Yeah. um, So on the one hand, just like you said, Dean, um, you know, charity alone is great. It's fine. Giving people money, (laughs) I recommend it highly. (laughs) (laughs) you gotta do it you gotta do it uh but also we can use money to actually build institutions and bases of power so that we can actually you know resolve those those central contradictions uh of capitalism uh you know i think that you can't be afraid of fundraising you can't be afraid of you know getting people to give money to particular organizations or causes because at the end of the day um 
you know, like very powerful and also very stupid political <laughs> elites and uh, their corporate backers. They're not afraid to do it. They're not afraid to be organized. And in fact, they are extremely organized. Um, and, uh, you know, the the left or uh, a real anti-capitalist struggle or whatever, right? It's not going to be able to oppose those um, those very organized um, bourgeois structures without without money, without uh, that type of uh, giving. So yeah, I mean, maybe that's a place that we can we we can end up, and then we can start talking about charity first. Does that sound okay, Dean? I think so. Yep. Um, so maybe one way into this is to start with a slogan that I really like that I heard first actually in the Christian Solidarity Movement, but it has some roots in the mutual aid kind of tradition, and it is solidarity, not charity. And I like it a lot because, like you were saying, Matt, charity is fine and it's good. And I think we'll kind of expand also our definition of charity as we go here. So I don't want to, like, get down on the concept. You know, solidarity, not charity, it's a little bit truncated. Um, But uh, what it's getting at is the idea that what we should really be doing is building these kind of relationships of mutual aid, relationships of solidarity that don't rely on, you know, giving somebody, meeting their immediate needs once and then never again, right? It's about building those deeper connections, deeper relations, and so on. But I think what I like most about it is that it already sort of points us in the direction of thinking about uh, why charity in the first place. Like, why do we need to do charity? Um, Why is there a a reason for it? What's the cause of something like poverty and all that kind of stuff? So maybe we can just start uh, on that part. You know, the the short answer is capitalism. (laughs) We've been gesturing toward that already. But how can we spin this out a little more, do you think, Matt? I mean, why do we even need to be charitable during Lent at all? Yeah, totally. So this is such a weird poll. But, um, okay, I've been reading this book. (laughs) This would not be an episode of our podcast unless I was telling you about a book I was reading. Um, I've been reading this book that is extremely interesting, and I really like it. But at the same time, it is pretty strange. It's called A Commentary on the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. And it's written by the Christians for National Liberation in uh, the Philippines. Okay. It is an interesting book because it's like a group of communist Christians who are literally writing about like social doctrine. And that's cool. But it's also weird because it centers completely on the compendium of the social doctrine of the Catholic Church, which is like a thing that's fine. I mean, whatever. I don't know whose book's for. Like, who are they trying to win over? I don't really know. <laughs> but uh, needless to say, I am I am won over personally. <laughs> and uh, so I guess maybe it's written for me. But anyways, the they spend a lot of time in one of the early chapters talking about um, the uh, – like the social doctrine of the Catholic Church, the the social teaching of the Catholic Church around uh, the rich and the poor, right? There are these two classes in society, and um, Dean, you can you can tell me I'm wrong if this is if I'm not putting it just right here because you know more about it than I do. But fundamentally, the 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 social teaching of the Catholic Church says that like, well, the rich and the poor, like, it sucks, but they shouldn't be in, they shouldn't be opposed to one another, right? They should work sort of harmoniously together, and they should find a way to cooperate. This is a quote from the compendium. Uh, the poor should work for the rich, and the rich would use their private property to give enough sustenance to the poor. A cool idea. A cool idea that if if that happened, I guess class harmony would be more of like a viable idea. Um, but that's not how it works. That's that's not how it works at all. The poor do work for the rich. That's true. But the rich don't in turn use their private property or the gains from that wealth to give sustenance to the poor, to reinvest in the workers. They don't do any of that. They barely even give people raises. Um, and, you know, if you do, it's still like, you know, 3% or whatever. It, 
I'm not here to complain, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> rich people don't do this thing. <laughs> they, they don't uh, they don't use their private property to give enough sustenance to the poor. So, like, that, where that leaves us is not class harmony, but class war. Um, so the cooperation between, you know, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, it's not possible because the rich are, at least for the moment, far more organized in the whole structure of class war. Um, they're, they have far more power. Uh, they have, uh, I think, a stronger sort of societal bond or whatever. I don't know how to say that exactly right. But what I'm saying is that uh, the rich don't uh, have to fork over that money to the poor because, like, the poor haven't made them yet. Um, and in some in mm-hmm. some ways, you know, there have been small gains and shouldn't overlook those. But I guess like that's the fundamental that's the fundamental problem here. That's the fundamental opposition in capitalism that uh, there are the wealthy, there are the people who own the means of production, and there are the people that you know work or the lumpen or you know, depending on how like you know we want to stratify that class society. There are these two these two distinct poles though, and uh, the rich are not going to just sort of like be nice for no reason. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that is a big piece of it. And Catholic social teaching is something that has certainly developed since uh, River Novarum in the late 19th century, the 1800s. Um, River Novarum is kind of the foundational encyclical for modern Catholic social teaching. And it is the one where we first really encounter this idea of class harmony. And it's intentionally a, a sort of competition, I think, with... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the socialist movement in the Industrial Revolution. So it's an interesting thing to read, and I think it's true. You know, it. Uh, I wouldn't go to it for social theory, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, and Catholic social teaching, I think, over time has actually uh, developed quite far beyond it. I mean, you don't find a lot of um, class harmony rhetoric, for instance, in the, the encyclicals of Pope Francis, totally. but neither did you really find it much in uh, Pope Benedict, didn't even talk about that kind of thing very much. It's it's sort of a framing device that has gone away, but it's still with us in lots of ways in the Catholic Church and in Catholic social teaching in general, and I think, you know, it's true, like, on the one hand, you're right, Matt, like, you know, counting on the rich to sort of just obey their conscience and do their part and give sustenance to the poor is already a pretty naive thing to kind of hang your hopes on. But I think the other problem is that it really, that way of thinking obscures how rich people get rich in the first Mm -hmm. place. So in capitalism, the whole idea is if you're a person, a person who is rich, uh, chances are <laughs> it's you're, you're rich because of the exploitation of somebody somewhere on the earth, right? If it's generational wealth, it's probably the result of generations of exploitation. Uh, if you're kind of a newly minted rich person, um, you know, someplace there's there are working people that you employ uh, who are getting the short end of the stick so that you can get more, right? Uh, that is the only way to really get rich is to siphon up as much profits as you can from working people who you you give less to, right? You you kind of make these weird sovereign decisions as a rich person about who deserves to have money, and usually rich people decide that they are the ones <laughs> that deserve to have money. Right. Uh, and I think it's really important to think of it that way too, that like it's more than just issues of conscience and morality when we talk about capitalism. Um, in fact, you can meet rich people that seem pretty nice. I mean, I've met plenty of rich folks, people with way more money than me who are nice enough. Um, I get on with them well. They're <laughs> they're kind to me and so on. Uh, but at the end of the day, to amass that kind of fortune in the economy that we have, you can't do it without those exploitative relationships. So all, all that to say, uh, you know, when we talk about 
the these contradictions in capitalism, these inequalities, it's really important to pay attention to those structuring injustices. Otherwise, we're always going to keep on targeting things at the wrong uh, wrong points. Yeah, totally. You know, there's an there, this is beyond just sort of like social teaching of like the Catholic Church or any other church too, right? There's like there are ways that people have ideologized thinking through like the stratification of classes and like saying, you know, it's sort of like it's good. Like, for example, um, it reminds me of this. There's a, a, an anthropologist named Oscar Lewis, um, who is a, a right wing figure that people talk about every now and again, um, who he came up with this idea or this phrase called the culture of poverty in like, I don't know, the 60s or 70s or something. Anyways, it was an idea that the political right picked up because basically it was like, you know, there are things that poor people do that are unique to them that make them poor, right? <laughs> they don't work particularly hard. They're lazy. All of these ideas, right? So, you know, the um, the class stratification happens uh, in, in all kinds of different ways and people find all kinds of different ways of um, baptizing it as sort of logical or reasonable mm-hmm. where really it's not, right? It's systemic. So... Um, I guess all of that together kind of helps um, accentuate what the point is. That it, the point is that capitalism um, fundamentally necessitates that these two classes exist, that poverty exists, that like charity is necessary in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe to kind of keep going on this theme as well. So really what we're talking about right now is the contradiction between capital and workers for the most part. But when we talk about the poor or people who fall outside of the working class, we were just talking about a working class sort of categorizations, you know, the proletariat and the lump of proletariat, sure. I think maybe even earlier this yeah, year. I, so. <laughs> I can't remember now. Um, but, you know, when we talk about the poor as kind of a big, broad category, that maybe includes some people who would be workers or proletarians, but also encompasses lots of other people who might not be, you know, who might be in other situations, especially when we think about global issues and global poverty and so on. Um, that also creates a whole nother kind of nest of, of problems, right? Uh, and in those cases, um, <laughs> the rich not only exploit the poor as sort of potential, you know, like uh, potential markets, perhaps in, in some capitalist situations, uh, but they also might exploit them in all kinds of other ways, right? As uh, maybe obstacles to potential wealth, um, as uh, possible commodities on the labor market in the future, right? As people who could be written off and forgotten about. Uh, the fact of the matter is, um, there is more wealth in the world now than there has ever been in you know global history. And that wealth is every single day, uh, rich people choose not to use that to create other kinds of structures by which poor people aren't kept poor. So I think it's important to think of it that way too, that like the contradiction between labor and capital is a big complicated one and we focus a lot of energy on it. But what I love so much about the tradition of liberation theology is that it even gives us a bigger view to say it's even beyond just the contradiction between labor and capital. It's like a whole economy that is built around exploiting, uh, destroying, and excluding or ignoring the poor more broadly, which is a, an even bigger category. Totally. Okay. So like Dean said, there's a lot to say about this. We could probably go on and on, but let's not for a hot second. Let's stop. <laughs> something <laughs> something we don't do often. Let's stop. I, I mean, generally, right, like e- even at this at this point, e- even complicating things so far and kind of laying, laying things out as they are right now, it's pretty clear that like charity is kind of an idea that's in trouble, <laughs> I think a little bit. Right. Like if charity is a thing where you just like you you give somebody some money and they can meet their immediate needs, that's fine. Again, nothing wrong with that. But like if charity is just that, then like 
I don't know. It's it's not changing the world. It's really like, you know, just a piece. It, it's a thing that you do. It's a, it's a small Band-Aid you can put over a big gaping wound. So, I mean, if, if charity is something that we think of as disconnected or is in practice disconnected from the struggle of, like, of working people, of poor people, of, you know, however we want to talk about those like stratifications of class, then it could do some good. But fundamentally, it leaves the core problem unchanged. And like it makes it just like ends up sort of exacerbating the problem, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. That, uh, you know, it, it leaves um, it leaves poor people there to be exploited continually. And then, like, you know, people scrambling again to find more ways to, like, meet the needs of those poor people rather than, like, actually allocating money to uh, eradicate poverty <laughs> to stop the exploitation mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah. And at worst, you know, not only does it uh, fail to address to really alleviate suffering, but it also eases the conscience of rich people to feel like they've paid their dues or they're giving back to a community that they've already stolen from, right? <laughs> There's all these ways that charity actually functions ideologically as a way to keep these systems of inequality going. Well, right, and then you, know, um, you, can, you can give charitably and then it's a tax write-off for you, and that's yeah, great. Yeah, huh? exactly. Yeah, exactly. So charity is, is you know, <laughs> a part of the big racket of capitalism. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I think, though... You know, one thing that is important, though, I guess, is to see charity, I said earlier, as something we might be able to expand a little bit and try to think a little more broadly about. And I really actually appreciate the way Pope Francis talks about it in Fratelli Tutti, which was an encyclical he wrote in 2020, um, focusing on solidarity. So he says there, uh, there is also a commanded love expressed in those acts of charity that spur people to create more sound institutions more just regulations, more supportive structures. It follows that it is an equally indispensable act of love to strive to organize and structure society so that one's neighbor will not find themselves in poverty. It is an act of charity to assist someone suffering, but it is also an act of charity, even if we do not know that person, to work to change the social conditions that caused his or her suffering. If someone helps an elderly person cross a river, that is a fine act of charity. The politician, on the other hand, builds a bridge, and that too is an act of charity. While one person can help another by providing something to eat, the politician creates a job for that person and thus practices a lofty form of charity that ennobles his or her political activity. I think, you know, obviously we could kind of complicate the role of the politician. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that part, Uh, but but that's okay. I I like to think about it in terms of a a good people's government, right? (laughs) You know, like uh, you've listened to the communes, they said they want a bridge, and so, you know, that's your act of charities to kind of be that functionary. Anyway, that's, that's how I like to put it together in my brain. But I think the real key here is to see charity as, you know, like Pope Francis says, um, Sure, uh, it's an act of charity to, you know, give somebody some assistance, but it's also an act of charity to change the social conditions that cause their suffering and to try to see these two things as part of like you need to have both of them if you want to be authentically charitable, I think is actually a good impulse. Yeah, I think that's a really cool way of thinking about it. The Pope, as usual, is right, except when he's talking about (laughs) when he's talking about charity, not like whether or not you should have kids or dogs. I don't know. (laughs) Um, that's a little bit of a hot topic maybe, but I think here this makes a lot of sense, right? That when charity actually addresses the, I mean, like the real struggles of actual people, that's good. (laughs) When it actually overturns the things that keep people in poverty, that's good. Um, when you build a bridge, it's great. I guess I'm here for it. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Thinking of it in this like more expansive way is pretty helpful. It it definitely helps us get out of the, um, 
it helps us get out of the problem of charity as sort of like a band-aid and it, it lurches towards charity as transformational idea. Yeah, I think, you know, I said earlier, I like the slogan solidarity, not charity, and I still do. I think it's useful. Um, but I think trying to think about what we mean by charity and trying to see it, too, as part of a much deeper Christian tradition that is older than capitalism is really important as well. Right. Like um, charity is a, a classic sort of Christian virtue and idea to talk about. Um, it's something that arises out of Christianity's own mutual aid uh, situation, right? Uh, giving each according to their need, um, from each according to their ability. That's really kind of Christian charity in a meaningful sense. Um, and I think about it a lot because, uh, as I've said on this podcast before, I work for this organization called Development and Peace, which is part of uh, a kind of global network called Caritas Internationalis, or <laughs> Charity International, <laughs> literally. But we always say, we, you know, we don't describe ourselves as a charity. We describe ourselves as a solidarity movement. And what that means for us is we are, uh, you know, really embodying, I think, a deeper kind of Christian tradition of charity by especially sending uh, resources from Canada, from the global north to the global south, you know, to people in Madagascar who are building uh, agroecology villages for, you know, food sustainability or to land defenders in Honduras who are, you know, fighting against big business encroaching on indigenous communities and so on, like, that is actually sort of uh, the moment where solidarity and charity maybe come together in a way that's not mutually exclusive. Like they're they're of a piece and you kind of have to, you know, figure out how to hold them all together. That makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> development piece is so cool. <laughs> I think it's good. <laughs> I'm here for it. Uh, it this, all, this whole thing makes me think a little bit of a Bible verse, which is great. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've been getting slowly back into the Bible lately, which is a weird thing. Uh, sort of as a disaffected evangelical, <laughs> all these uh, Bible verses and all these languages, uh, all these like biblical rhetorics are kind of floating in my brain from being a, uh, a Bible quizzer as a youth. And they're all bubbling <laughs> up in the weirdest ways now, um, maybe in the best ways. But um, yeah, I guess the, there's a, a pretty famous parable in, in Matthew called the sheep and the goats where uh, Jesus is kind of telling this parable um, about, uh, you know, the people who paid attention to the least of these. The, Jesus says, you know, um, he, he, I guess famously, this is the line that everyone knows is that uh, Jesus tells his, uh, the disciples, you know, like, um, well, he says this, um, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. But then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes? And then the king will reply, truly, I tell you, when whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Right. And this is sort of like um, this is I mean, this is a pretty communist Bible verse, honestly. And it's great. The thing that I kind of like <laughs> I always miss or I think that I mean, I miss for sure because I don't read the Bible enough. But also I think other people miss, too, is that when Jesus is saying this in the parable, Jesus is not saying this to like individual people. He's saying this to like the the nations um, is what the Bible says. The the nations are gathered before him. This is um, when he's like separating people from the shepherd. <laughs> this is where he's separating the sheep from the goats, right? So this um this whole thing about like when did you give me something to drink? When did you clothe me? When did you visit me in prison? This whole thing is not addressed to individual people. Is like 
that these are individual acts of charity that you should do. Though, I mean, they are. There's absolutely no reason you shouldn't think that. But they are also, like, it's addressed to, like, sort of, like, the nation. It's addressed to this, like, larger political mm. structure. And I think that's actually kind of important, an important piece of the puzzle that, uh, you know, yeah. I, I mean, we can read it both ways. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I'll, at the end of the day, I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from doing good things. <laughs> Visit people in jail. Give people who are thirsty water. That's good. Please do not hear me saying the opposite. It will weigh so heavily on my conscience if I even believe that for a second. But the point is that there's, like, um, in, in this particular parable, right, the 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 way that it's directed is is not down at individuals, though it could be read that way, and that's fine. It's directed up at the political structures of, of a society that lets people go thirsty, naked, imprisoned, and so on. And I think that that's, I mean, I mean, that's going along with the uh, Pope Francis's reading of the of commanded love, and I think that's good. Yeah, it makes sense too of that liberation theology theme of collective salvation and collective sin that and and not only liberation theology actually it's it's in the compendium of the compendium of the social doctrine of the church right <laughs> that uh uh that compendium actually has a lot to say about solidarity and in its section on solidarity it talks about structural sin as being a, a key feature of catholic social teaching something a lot of catholics i guess don't know or, right. <laughs> or aren't aren't interested in but uh it's important too to see that there is a kind of collective um collective judgment going on in the bible right uh the bible has this um certainly uh an important role to play in our individual spirituality etc but it has a huge communal and collective thrust that's like the whole uh sort of theme even of uh, the hebrew scriptures right is like a, a whole community getting judged over and over again um or and delivered over and over yeah. again and that doesn't really go away when you get into the new testament or something so important to kind of think about that when we think about charity and global structural economics and so on especially when you read those kinds of parables about final judgments it, it gets a little totally spooky. i mean even in uh, somewhere else in matthew i can't remember exactly where this is now it's somewhere in there though i promise Jesus, Jesus does like he he openly criticizes the uh, like cities who don't believe that who, who don't repent. That's what it is. You know, he goes right. there. He does. He does all of the cool miracles and they're great, but they don't repent. And he he like, you know, he says, woe to you, entire city. <laughs> it's not just like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the chosen people or whatever. Right. It's like uh, it's structural. I think that's really something to consider living in the United States. <laughs> it's not looking good for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. So let's see. If we thought about charity in a kind of structural way, I think uh, you know we've we've been able to expand the category out at least in such a way with Pope Francis's help that we could kind of see charity as being about the the structural side of things as well. Um, if we could maybe bring in the almsgiving piece a little bit more too, I think that it can help us expand our understanding of almsgiving uh, by the same token. So you know when I think of almsgiving, I think of discrete individual actions most of the time, giving money to a person on the street um sharing a meal with somebody who isn't gonna eat that day or whatever it might be you know uh, or even maybe donating to like a i don't know a people who are on the ground zero of of all that kind of stuff right soup kitchens and all that kind of stuff and i think that's good and important <laughs> like we keep saying uh don't mean to dissuade anybody from doing those things participating in those things i think christians have an obligation to do all that kind of stuff right it's like I don't know. Sometimes Marxists complain a lot about like people even participating in charities. And on the one hand, like I kind of get it because it's true. You know, we let the state off the hook, for example, when we allow charities to fill in the gaps. But at the same time, we know the state is not going to fill in the gaps. So you got to catch people or they're just Mm going to fall. 
Anyway, uh, side note. <laughs> but when we think about almsgiving, uh, I think it's also helpful to try to see what that looks like in a broader sense too, right? So um, it can mean, I think, things like uh, what I was talking about with development and peace, finding kind of solidarity organizations that are capable of literally rerouting money and, and capital and funds from the global north back to the global south or to, you know, exploited peoples around the world. I think that is kind of a structural almsgiving piece. But even more general, maybe it's helpful to think of almsgiving for me as a uh, kind of contributing to that that broader charity piece Pope Francis talks about, building structural change, contributing to actual structural change. And that goes to the, the kind of second half of the episode. You know, what? how can money be a force for good? Or how can we kind of think about um, pooling our money as people who want a better world to uh, build the institutions we need to get there? So Matt, I'm going to give it over to you. What can we do? <laughs> what can we do to give alms for structural change? Right. So... I think that there is on the left generally um, maybe because of what we talked about last week about temptation and power and all these kinds of ideas. But I think on the left generally, this is probably not true for everybody, but again, (laughs) generally speaking, there's a sort of fear (laughs) of, of money. There's a fear of power. There's a fear of, um, of having power and like even knowing what to do with it. I think that 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 exists. That's a, that's my critique that I'm bringing. I guess I've seen it in people and the way that they have resisted, I don't know, um, building more power <laughs> or, or really seizing a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully that's not too hot of a take. But anyways, uh, that being the case, though, like you need money to do those types of things. You need money to pay for organizers. You need money to pay for all of the tools that organizers need to use. Action Network, it's not free. You got to pay for it. <laughs> you got to pay someone to write those fancy emails that people get to tell you when to show up. You got to pay people to run your live streams. You got to pay people to, I don't know, go take pictures. You got to pay people to liaise with the police and lawyers and everything else. Man, <laughs> a social movement is expensive stuff for sure. <laughs> it doesn't mm. come for free. And uh, social movements, uh, political movements, political organizations, whatever, however they look, they need they, they need they need not only your time and your energy as a volunteer and someone to show up, but also they desperately need money to like make sure that they can do the work they're doing. And dang, it is so much um so i don't know when you are part of a union and you pay union dues for example that is something that um helps your union continue organizing other people i mean and if they aren't doing that Mm -hmm. if they're not organizing other people then you need to start organizing your union (laughs) uh organizing (laughs) is always sort of the key i think at the end of the day (laughs) but uh sort of a a panacea for all things uh, i suppose but that's it that's maybe one way that structural change you know that's one way that we can think of like almsgiving or charity in in terms of structural change right uh exploitative jobs are very bad uh how do you make them better even like or, or how would you even build power to start transforming those relationships uh, unionizing your workplace, paying your union dues, and getting getting the work done, right? That's that's at least one way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, it's really easy when you are excited about the left and um, I guess excited about uh, de-linking from all the very bad things in society to also drop out of kind of understanding the nuts and bolts of how things go together <laughs> because, you know, you're understandably, I mean, in my own life, I'll just speak in the first person, I guess. I think, you know, I, I can understand why at a certain time in my life, I was kind of really suspicious of institutions in general, uh, just thought they were not 
probably useful, uh, all too compromised, all that kind of stuff. But I think the more you do get into organizing, the more you find that, whoa, actually, you could really use the help of an institution. <laughs> you could use the help of like a lot of people who, you know, have training and understand what they're doing. Uh, and you could use people who are on a payroll even. I think there's some danger to uh, transforming organizations into, you know, staff organizations rather than volunteer member-led organizations. But at the same time, um, I think anybody who's ever been involved in organizing <laughs> can tell you like <laughs> at a certain point, it really helps to have a staff person <laughs> around that you can count on to you know be there and and be paid to be there uh so i think that is huge for sure i think also you know i used to teach this class on uh prison abolition and one of the big points that i tried to drive home in the first half of the class is that prisons are kind of everywhere in our brains like they're not just places people go. They're also things on TV. They are part of the music that we listen to. They're part of the stories that we tell about ourselves and others, whether we've been to prison or not. And it creates this sense, I heard it even from my my students, this sense of almost like, okay, this is too overwhelming. Like, you know, a sense of powerlessness. Yeah. But I said, you know, the good news about it is <laughs> because it's everywhere, you can also intervene at so many different points and like basically be doing something meaningful. Right. So for some people, that is building a, a members led people's organization and so on. But for other people, it is doing cultural work. Right. Thinking like an abolitionist about how to write a story or how to you know, create a film or TV show or something or uh, how to make different kinds of media and so on. And I think about that a lot uh, in terms of uh, financially supporting things as well, whether it's anybody from an artist who's trying to sort of imagine the world differently to, in my case, having spent a long time in, in journalism, uh, supporting publications that I think are doing a good job, um, especially G's Magazine. <laughs> Specifically that one. But, yes. <laughs> you know, specifically geez but tossing money at at those kinds of efforts where people really are working hard to do something different to imagine a world to to kind of create more openings than we had before i think uh, it's important to think through what does almsgiving look like when we're trying to invest in what we need to actually get to structural change totally i mean you can't underestimate i think actually how important uh the cultural production side of things is i mean i know that you know culture is not politics specifically speaking, <laughs> they're, they're two different things. But like um, when you show up at a political rally or whatever, it's powerful when you have good graphics. It's great when you have cool signs mm -hmm. and chants and great songs and whatever. Um, these days I've been working with the Poor People's Campaign and that's something that they really do value in their like organization and mobilization efforts is, uh, is making sure that there are people there to sing the sort of, to sing the movement songs that need to be sung. Um, <laughs> I was watching, this is, Neither here nor there, really. But I was watching a, uh, the live stream of this march the other day that was in Ohio. And uh, people like up and down this this march were singing the song about uh, going into the rich man's house and taking what they stole. And like, oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, so there's this aspect of, in, in which that like, you know, money that you can spend to make sure that like actually like actual countercultural maybe and politically motivated art exists and is there where people need to see it is pretty good it's it's well spent it has power it's an organizing tool if nothing else um or e even people like i mean whenever i think of art in general i think of ben wildflower because he is like he is he is like <laughs> yeah. such a he's a great artist he's amazing he is really like um funny and interesting and moving art and i think that it's worth like 
giving money to him to keep making it. It's important. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone shares that wild picture of Mary and with the Magnificat, and I think it's great. Um, I think that it's a great organizing tool, and you can't uh, you can't you can't have a movement without that kind of stuff. And like people need money to make it, so I don't know. There you go. Yeah, I mean, even speaking uh, on a personal note, right, on this podcast, we have a Patreon and people support it. And for a long time, I was like teetering on the edge of unemployment (laughs) as I was cobbling together like 30 different jobs that I was doing. Uh, And it made a real difference to me even to be able to like, you know, set aside time to do a podcast because I knew that there would be money coming into it if I made the time to do it. And like, I don't know if I never made anything off of it. Would I have done it for as many years as we've done it? Probably not. Like the the material conditions of my life wouldn't have allowed me to do that right for a long time. And I think it's important to recognize that like, uh, you know, everybody's capacity is different and uh, organizations also have kind of different needs, some more and less individuals too, all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I think it's important not to like shame people into spending totally. money. That's like discourse that happens on Twitter yeah. a lot. <laughs> it really bothers me. But at the same time, it's like we will get the institutions that we are willing to fund as poor and working people. And like you said at the top of the episode, Matt, like, the right is well organized and they have more money than us, right? They can throw a million dollars in the garbage can to try to make Jesus the biggest brand in <laughs> and, your city. And it'd be stupid. And like, yeah, exactly. And ineffective and not good. And like, we will never be able to do that, right? We'll be lucky to get a hundred million dollars <laughs> to, to do anything uh, meaningful in terms of like building, you know, a real society that works for poor and working people. And I think at least uh, on this side of, you know, who's owning the means of production uh, one day when working people have it, we'll be able to do whatever we want. But uh, it's important to, in this kind of shell of capitalism, um, just be building up those kinds of institutions that we want, that we need. Totally. I mean, there's a, a pretty, uh, uh, here's another slogan, I guess, for the podcast. You only get what you're organized to take. The the gist of it being that, like, you know, do, do you want a different world? <laughs> then you have to be organized right. in order to take it. You have to be organized in such a way where you could actually win, uh, where you can actually make changes. And of course, it doesn't mean all at once or whatever, but it means like transformational changes that you can actually have control over, like organizing your workplace or, um, I don't know, uh, organizing the tenants in your building or or whatever. I mean, organizing the people that ride the bus with you, organizing whatever. But <laughs> you you only only get uh, you only get victories that you're actually organized to take, and to do that, you need money. And I don't know. I don't want this to be like a shill for a bunch of different organizations that I do like myself, but like I, I don't know. At the end <laughs> right. of the day. That's what it has to be. And maybe not giving money, maybe giving your time, maybe giving your attention, maybe posting online about it, which is, you know, maybe the bare minimum too. But all of those things are really important. And uh, none of this is getting done without people doing the work. Um, So listen, if you're crazy about socialism, if you love to hash the debates out between the Sino-Soviet split or whatever, and you think that Mikhail Gorbachev (laughs) was a revisionist, I don't really care that much uh, about those things. I mean, they're interesting, I suppose. It's great. I love history. Um, But uh, people need to do the work uh, more than anything, or else uh, it's all for naught. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, um, almsgiving, if you have the means, you got to give it if, alms posting. If you can make the posts, you can give those too, I guess. I but uh, <laughs> alms posting for sure. But I think, you know, the moral of the story, I guess, is we were talking earlier about like 
expanding that view of charity to say, yeah, on the one hand, you can give to an individual, but also you want to create the conditions where it doesn't make sense to say that people are hungry, right, that they need help to get food and so on. And the thing of it is, like uh, Pope Francis was saying, you know, okay, you could help somebody across the river, or you could build a bridge, they're both acts of charity. I think it's the same thing here, right? Like you can um, talk about like, uh, you, you know, you can directly help somebody get housing or something like that, or um, directly help someone get food. But at the end of the day, you also have to be investing in institutions that are going to be capable of, of pressuring our uh, our cities to be able to demand a, a radical housing program, right? Or uh, to um, force people's hands, uh, force our economy's hands when it comes to doing something different. Obviously, it's a big long-term goal, but you're not going to get there without investing real capital into it. And people have more and less of it to give, more skills maybe and less of them to give. But trying to square those kind of... Uh, things during Lent, I think, has been really helpful for me trying to think about like, yeah, I want to carry some change around on purpose to give to people that I see on the street. But also, I got to think about how to create a world where people don't need to be on the street. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Or you can give us an alms posting on uh, on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> give us an alms posting of five stars. Drop your five stars in the bucket, please. An alms, <laughs> an alms rating. rating. Everything that you do for us specifically is an alms something, and we appreciate it. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week for another alms episode. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.